Okay, today we've got um, Jamie Murray Wells with us, who, as you can see, is not too ancient, which is very good. Um, so I think you'll have a lot in common with him. He started his business, Glasses Direct, as you can see, whilst he was still at university at Bristol <coughs> UWE. Um, and it started in 2004. It now has 100 employees. And Jamie was just telling me now that they sell a pair of glasses every minute, which isn't bad. Um, it's web-based, and apparently, I mean, even if you're consumers of glasses, it sounds like a good thing to know about because you can save up to 90%. I'm sounding like an advert for you, aren't I? Um, on the high street prices. So Jamie's going to explain how he did it, the whole story behind it, and then he has all sorts of tips for us. Cool. Thanks. Thank you very much, um, Gillian, for asking me. So I thought what I'd do is to dive into a bit about our story today, about how we came about, and um, out of that, uh, pull out, try and pull out five or so um, kind of key top tips that I would give uh, to entrepreneurs who are thinking of starting businesses out of university or, or while they're at university. Um, but just before I do, for those of you that don't know what Glasses Direct is, Gillian's done a great job kind of selling us, but I'll do one more minute um, just to kind of fill you in on, on what it is, why I'm standing here. The business that I started um, uh, sells prescription glasses over the web. Um, we're the largest in the world that do that. And you go to the high street, you get your prescription, you come online, you virtually try on your glasses if you like online, ask your friends if, if they think that they suit you or not, get shouted down like I do when I choose the wrong pair, um, and type in your prescription, build your lens package online, and then we make them up. Each order is completely custom made, and then we deliver them at a fraction of the cost. So it's, it's, it's a value offering. So that is Glasses Direct for those of you that don't know. But let's just rewind um, about uh, five years. So five years ago, I was sitting in um, a lecture hall like this, doing my universities. This is, that's me. And uh, just to make it completely clear, I was a student five years ago, and um, I was studying English at Bristol um, UWE, Bristol Polytechnic. So I feel quite humbled coming to a university like this. But, um, but yeah, I was at Bristol UWE studying, and I basically bought a pair of glasses. So it sounds as simple as that. Um, we all go through life kind of having experiences every, every day, and sometimes we come across problems. And I think what differentiates an entrepreneur is someone that basically looks at the problem and goes, there's something up here, you know, maybe you can do something about it. So the first thing that's kind of sprung to mind is that that is a hell of a lot of money. It was 150 quid, an arm and a leg. And, uh, <laughs> and basically, so I, I then went and decided to start researching. I looked up factories. I got on the web. I went to the university libraries. I used the resources of the university. And the university indeed helped me do that. And I think my first kind of sort of su substantive tip um, so far is that I think university is the ideal time to kind of come up with your eureka moment like I do because you've got all the resources you need to find and discover your factories and the people that are players in the industry and the people who make the frames or the equivalent of whatever product is you're going to be selling. Um, you've got specialist people all around you. I think there are technologists in this room. You know, it, it, you, you, you've got help. You've got graphic designers here. Um, there are people who you can club together with and, and, and build a business out of. You've got time, um, in, unless your studies are completely overwhelming you, you might have some time on the side. And if you've got a part-time job or whatever, maybe you know, you've got some money. I put the last, most of the last instalment of my student loan into starting my business. Um, and, um, and I think um, you know, what I did was to basically just try and, and, and figure out a way that I could make glasses for less. And so I rang around, and I was stonewalled by pretty much everyone in the industry. Um, and eventually, I discovered that glasses cost £6 to make, and £150 were sold on the high street. So that was the kind of key. That was my eureka moment. And I kind of realized that if I could do them cheaper, I could, uh, I could save myself a lot of money and hopefully get more beer. And um, so what I did was I put a load of, I got all my friends, and um, I basically convinced them to help. Um, and they came and worked um, with me in my house because it was kind of cheaper than an office. And I think there's nothing wrong with starting small. I heard someone say, start small, grow big, start big, go bust. And I think that I never had a stigma about starting from home. And I think if you look at some of the best companies in the world, like Facebook, you know, started from university, Google, Ditto, um, Amazon from a garage, you know, they basically start from nothing. And so don't think you're going to go to, you know, Canary Wharf straight away. Be be humble, be ready to just basically 
um, kind of boot roll it yourself, be, be, be ready to kind of um, uh, just jump in there. And, you know, I used to do things like, you know, in order to get sales, like kind of jump on the train at Bristol Station and run down this train kind of flowering, you know, as I went. And then the ticket conductor would chase me off in the, in, in the station. And, you know, and then people would be stuck with your flyers for the whole way through. And these are kind of really guerrilla and quite kind of, you know, they sound pretty kind of grubby kind of marketing and it's all quite kind of hands-on. But when you're getting your business up and running, you need to do everything you possibly can to kind of make it work. Um, and this was kind of, you know, what it was like. So here's some photos when that was kind of, our, that was my, you know, my parents, one of the rooms in my parents' house. And as you can see, we've kind of got computers there. And um, this was my sister's bedroom, was, before I kicked her out and we put a computer there instead um, for, for extra office space. And, uh, and this was our first organization chart. So you can see um, a kind of whiteboard here and you've got kind of sales one, Katie upstairs. You've got kind of like internet orders one in the living room. You've got, you know, anyway, Tess, no one knew where she was. And uh, so it was, it, it, was, it was a fun time and it was kind of very, you know, hands-on and it, it was great. And I think um, start really small, try and test the model, you know, see if it works. So I, I basically built a business um, out of out of just the last installment of my student loan. It was very, very small at this stage. There was kind of, you know, but the point was that it was really low risk and if it didn't work, what was the worst that could have happened? Well, I could have lost a fortune and I could have wasted my summer holidays and the last um, uh, term of my university uh, program. So I could have wasted a hell of a lot of time and a hell of a lot of money. But at the end of the day, you know, it wasn't gonna, it wasn't gonna completely kill me. So this is a brilliant time, I think, to be thinking about getting a business up and running. You can test an idea. If you can put 500 quid, a grand, you know, it doesn't cost 5 million like Boo.com spent in the bubble to get a website up and running now. You can do it with a grand. And that's what, what I did. And I tested it. And, um, and it did work. Word spreads. And um, basically, people um, started to cotton on. Now, why did they kind of, why did people want to buy glasses? And what was sort of my priorities in terms of marketing? This would be my kind of second tip, would be to focus on the product. So if your product, as in, and our product, by the way, we, we, we thought about it as being from the first time you needed a pair of glasses all the way through to getting them and then your aftercare afterwards. So it's not just the pair of glasses themselves. But if your product, i.e. the web experience, the physical product you get, if your product is good enough, then it will sell itself. <coughs> and, you know, we realized this pretty early on that, um, you know, nowadays people will, People can tell people, people can tell 100,000 people at once. It's not just you go home and you tell your friends and family in the pub or over Sunday lunch. It's, as everyone knows, you go on moneysavingexpert.com and you tell 100,000 people. So crucially important to us at the early stage was just making sure that even if we made a loss on every single order, that basically people were so delighted by their experience with Glasses Direct that they would then go and tell more people. So I would tell you know, guys that work for us, look, if someone rings up and wants a car wash, you know, we would go and wash their car. We would lose money if we, if we, if we had to in order to uh, make that person happy. We would write handwritten post-it notes that went out with orders. We would say, you know, we noticed you had a high prescription, you didn't order thin lenses, so here's uh, uh, thin lenses for free. And we might have lost money on that order, but the fact is that person was delighted. And word spreads very quickly. And in this day and age, you know, if something goes, it really goes, and people adopt to it. Um, so my, um, my, my tip here is to focus, if you're going to think of spending a pound on marketing in the very early days, think about spending that pound on product, on making your product genuinely something people want to talk about. Um, and, um, and I think that, you know, this, this is a picture of an answer phone, because... Um, it kind of reminds me that I remember one time I was coming down um, from, uh, I woke up and I came down and it was about seven o'clock in the morning and the phone was ringing and I was in my dressing gown and not a nice thought <laughs> and um, basically uh, I picked it up and it said you've got 30 new messages, you've got to delete some because your mailbox is full. So I then pressed delete and it said you've got 30 and basically I could not write them down fast enough, they were coming in that fast. And and, you know, I think, um, I think that it's because we focused, you know, so relentlessly on making sure our product was amazing and that everyone was happy, every single person. I even delivered them myself quite a lot of the time just to ask customers how they felt, even though these, the, the, the ticket value on these glasses were £15, £20. Um, so some pictures. So, yeah, and, and that's why. And nowadays, you know, we get reviews like this. I, I thought this was classic. 
This is no exaggeration. The first night I wore these glasses out, I was invited to join a gentleman's club, asked to pay rugby for a local team, and I went home with a beautiful young lady who claimed, claimed the next day to have only talked to me because of my glasses. These glasses equals win. Okay? So go out and buy glasses and you will get lucky. Um, basically, but you know, if you, if you can kind of delight people, then you get stuff like that. And, um, but you know, you, you can't keep kind of doing that kind of stuff forever. And people, um, uh, you know, as a business kind of matures, we still carry through a lot of that stuff. Like we still send out handwritten notes. You know, um, uh, you'll get a signed quality card with a picture of the person who quality checked your glasses. Very often you'll talk to an optician when you call us, which you would never have expected. I still go out and deliver some glasses. I personally phone a customer pretty much every day. I, my email address is on the website for any of my customers to email me directly. It doesn't go through anyone. Um, you know, try asking an executive at British Airways to do that. It's not going to happen. But basically, we try and keep the personal touch. If we had someone the other day who said um, they were really disappointed with us, because inevitably, in any mail order business, you're going to get an element of returns. And this person said, um, I don't want your sorry. I want a pizza. So we delivered him a margarita that night. Okay? And we deliver people flowers when we go wrong. And so we try and give people stories to tell about us by surprising them with great service. Wow. We want people to go, wow. Um, we want, it's a medical product, so you can see that there. You'll see a lot of these are quite customer focused, but these are, this is the poster that you'd see pinned around our office. And that's how we keep trying to get people talking about us, you know, nowadays. And we like to position ourselves as being the customer champion, so that, you know, and we took a leaf out of Amazon's book, and I think any, you know, any business nowadays has to be, you know, customer centric. Your customer really is your boss. And if you, you know, it's the customers that really understand that and know that that will succeed, um, and those that don't, won't. And you know, if you, you've got to know it to the extent that you're willing to make mistakes like this happen. This wasn't on purpose, by the way. Um, you might, um, so you got like, High Street, 25 pounds, one of our glasses, our price, 29 pounds. So you know, that's how much will go to the, to, to the benefit of the customer. You know? I mean, okay, that was a mistake. It was a technology issue. But the fact is that you know, we will, if, if you can give the customer all the information they need, then they should make the decision in your favor anyway, um, because you should be the best in the market. So really, you know, treat the customer like it's your boss and, um, and go for it. Now, it wasn't all e easy, easy kind of plain sailing. And someone said to me outside that, um, usually when you know, some people focus on the good sides of doing business, you'd like to hear a bit about the bad sides. Well, I've got, we've been through some, tr some, some tricky times. And it was all to do um, with really, um, we've got some more cartoons coming up, you're going to love these, causing a stir. And, uh, and basically, you know, it, was a, it was a question of kind of the good guys and the bad guys, and it was all about supplies. So we, were, we found it very, very difficult to get supplies in our industry because we were doing such a... Um, a new thing. People didn't like us, and Specsavers and the like, um, Vision Express, Donald Nation, Boots, um, put pressure on our suppliers not to do business with us. And our website actually went down because we had no glasses to sell. We could not find suppliers. And the lesson out of this is that if you're doing something really disruptive, which you should be, um, then um, you're, it's not just British Airways and Virgin that get engaged in dirty tricks. You're going to expect a lot of you know, angst from the established, the traditional old school industries that you're going to shake up. And it's not something to be afraid of, because at the end of the day, who's the most important thing? It's not them, it's not you know, your, your shareholders, it's not people who are going to get worried, it's the, it's the customer. And they're the ones that are benefiting. Um, and you know, it, it, it got pretty, pretty sort of um, difficult at times. And, um, but we found supplies in the end. We thought the world was our oyster. And, uh, and, but, but the high street was generally worried that people were being fleeced. And so basically, here's, here's our website, which is a very early website. You can see it's pretty pretty you know, distant from the one you saw at the beginning. But um, basically, it's got no glasses on, as you can tell. And it was down. And that almost put us out of business, um, because we couldn't operate for, for weeks. Um, but, but the thing is that if you're doing something with a customer, you know, then you, you should be kind of fine with that. Um, so we actually hit back. And I think you can also turn it around to your advantage. And we sent um, sheep into Specsaver stores. Um, it was a very kind of simple thing um, kind of orientated around my last slide, which is all about being fleeced. Um, basically, we, 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 we sent sheep into Specsaver stores, and we put up billboards everywhere in Newcastle saying, um, don't get fleeced, um, or tell the high street to flock off. And basically, we, uh, and, and the, the billboards were what you see there, Specsensive. And kind of we had a great deal of kind of people rallying around it, you know, bloggers, 
people, um, I was going to say on Twitter, they weren't on then, but you know, that kind of, uh, we had a lot of sort of, you know, people kind of coming around the idea and, and actually we turned the sort of opposition we were getting from the industry into a positive from us in terms of marketing. So there's a silver lining on every cloud. Um, and I think when it comes to PR, I think it's really important that when I talked about customers talking to each other, you know, when I talk about kind of virality and word of mouth and talkability, that's not just customers, it's also journalists, of course. So if you do a good job and if you have a good story, then journalists will talk about it as well. And they will want to feature you. And if you're genuinely doing something that's of interest and, and you know, you're causing people to talk, then you can expect um, press. And that's something that if it doesn't um, materialize, you can help to materialize. Like we did a, a, a celebrity glasses auction um, where we, 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 we came up with a concept. We went out to people like Trevor McDonald, Ozzy Osbourne, and we said, um, can you give us your glasses and we will auction them. Uh, for charity, actually, for the Great Ormond Street Children's Charity. And it, it generated you know, a great deal of money for the Children's Hospital and also for us. Another charity initiative would have been Orbis Flying Eye Hospital. Um, and eventually, the, the time came for professionals, basically, for people who um, to kind of professionalize the management team. And I'd say, as a kind of tip, I'd say that basically, to kind of pull out a tip out of this, I think if I look back and I think about some of the biggest mistakes I've made, you know, any business that's scaled to um, sort of beginning to be a significant number of staff that we had, you're going to make sort of recruitment mistakes. But it's the people that you kind of put behind the business, like our management and our, our, our supervisory panel and our angels and dragons and, and venture capitalists and all these kind of people. It's those are the people that, um, and your staff, of course, you know, that I mentioned the first slide, are the people that really, you know, it's going to shape your business. And where some people are happy with, you know, referencing twice very formally and asking people for references. Go further. Reference six times. Reference four times. Do them informally. Just ring up and have a telephone chat with someone that used to work for them who maybe they didn't even recommend. You know, make sure you reference every single person, whether that's an investor, whether that's an employee, because these decisions about who you surround yourself are the most important decisions you can make. Um, and I can't emphasize that enough. And if most companies spend three months looking for a, a marketing hire, spend six months. You know, get the people right and your business will fly. Um, and, uh, and get it wrong and it can be expensive and time consuming. Um, so yeah, we, we basically established a factory um, opposite a bra factory. Um, don't know why that's kind of relevant, but just thought it was. So, um, and, um, and, and you know, internally we, we do stuff, like I think engaging you know, your staff is, is really important. So this is one we launched last week, a range of glasses. And these bands, actually a customer <laughs> services agent came up with, she took one of our black pair of glasses and she just said, why don't you just put little bands around them? And so we launched our neon range. And I think um, some of our best initiatives, like our, our customers um, and our staff have actually, you know, have actually created. So our best fit machine that lets you type in the sizing of your glasses actually came from a customer. You know, they recommended that, we put it into production, and now it's live on the website. So if you haven't got a great big feedback button on your website when you launch, you should do. Because I think talking to your staff, getting them involved, talking to your customers, getting them involved, is the best way of shaping your, your, sort of, um, your, your business. So what kind of things are we up to now? Well, if you go on our website, um, you'll see our, uh, we've got a virtual mirror. And uh, let me just see if this will work. Hang on a minute. Yeah, so our virtual mirror is... Um, it's basically some technology that allows you to use your webcam to try on your glasses online, like, like this guy here. This is just one of our customers, by the way, who uploaded this to YouTube. Anyway, um, basically, you, you can use your webcam to kind of try on your glasses online. So we put glasses on you, and you, your glasses go on your sort of face online, and then you can see them as if you're looking in a mirror. And it's really cool. And we're going to be doing a double mirror where you get two faces, and you can have one pair on one and one pair on the other. And then you can see yourself kind of looking like that. And I think um, if you're looking for ideas right now, one of, the, one of the ways to kind of go about looking for an idea, I think, is to look at the high street and anything that says tailor-made on it or that you think is too cosmetic for the web, like glasses, there are always technological solutions to it. And you can flip that industry just like I did with glasses, with the optical industry online. Um, and uh, you can see that how you know, Zappos.com in the US are doing it for shoes. They're now, whatever, 15% of their industry. Um, Blue Nile doing it with jewelry. ASOS are doing it with apparel. Um, and, and we're trying to do it with glasses as well. And I think um, it, you know, one of the things that really kind of inspires us in our office is trying to be creative about overcoming you know, some of the barriers that might stop people, like can I try them on, can I fit them, and that's kind of what keeps us buzzing in the office. Um, so yeah, and we, we install robotic machinery as well, which is kind of cool, and we've just done our, our sort of first um, TV advertising. So 
I mean, what is the kind of, what are the best bits, I think, about starting a, a company from, from your kind of university? Um, I suppose, for me, it was all about this kind of concept of kind of building something. I kind of like to actually, personally, I like to sort of build stuff. And then I loved the kind of recognition from customers when they, people appreciated it. So I used to do theatre at school and university, and I loved kind of building sets and, and directing and sometimes acting as well, and actually you know, receiving the recognition of having, you know, provided a product. And I, 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 I mean, for me, it's all about building. It's all about creativity. Um, so if, if, if you, I, I do not, I think that right now is a good time to start a business because for some businesses, especially ones that have supply concerns, you, you know, suppliers are going to be thinking a lot more commercially than ever before. There's a lot more people in the market looking for jobs so you can get great talent. It's not all doom and gloom out there. And I think it's... Uh, I think it's definitely worth considering going into business. So, thank you very much. That's my talk. And, um, yeah. Have so, a seat. And we'll, no I'll ask a few and then I'll Let open it up because there's so many people maybe. and I can feel there's a lot of energy in the room. So, I, w I don't dare ask you too many myself. Um, okay. Maybe I'll just shut that down. First thing I want to ask is just a theoretical question and then sure. the rest a, a, a practical one. But from a theoretical point of view, what you're doing shouldn't be doable because hmm. all the textbooks say you either go for a low-cost strategy and then you pare everything down, a kind of Ryanair yeah. thing, yeah. or you go for a real value-added, you value the customer, mm. you send them flowers. But mm. you're doing both? Yeah, and I think the beauty of um, kind of what we're doing in a way and what is possible now on the web is that with a high-touch product, something that is typically high-touch, like glasses, um, you know, where you expect to have a very kind of um, sort of intricate relationship, you know, on the, on the high street you expect to touch and feel, is that you, you can do those things online. I mean, people wouldn't think, for example, that we actually call about 30% of our customers um, who, who order with, fr from us. Um, we, we speak to them all personally. Our opticians might speak to them. And the kind of feel of our service is that it is quite hands-on after you've been through, through it. And I think that part of the job of dealing with very high-touch products like shoes and, and clothes and stuff like that online is that you have to try and kind of balance the, the kind of, you know, the, trying to keep costs down from not having, you know, expensive contact with customers with giving the impression and the feel of high-touch through innovative technological solutions, through remote communications like phone calls and, and, and just through supporting and holding their hand the whole way through and, and surprises and stories as well. Hmm. So you're saying that the value added you give is actually, through the technology, etc., reasonably low cost. Yeah, I, I think I mean, it's constantly, a, I mean, like in any mail order business, I think, you know, we are always focused on trying to bring down the amount of contacts per order. And I think, you know, but at the same time, we always appreciate that, you know, we, we need to provide a good, you know, hand-holding process all the way through technologically. We need to be able to go the extra mile. We need to be able to make exceptions, break rules, bend rules for customers. We need to have that flexibility. Customer services operators need to be able to order, you know, issue refunds where they perhaps it wasn't by the book to do that. We need to be able to give the impression that when customers really need it, we can and we will bend over backwards to make sure they get the extra effort. Okay. Um, I'm intrigued by some of the... Um, People were talking about this before. Um, problems that you mm. encounter. So yeah. you mentioned the suppliers. How on earth did you get over that? I think the interesting thing about suppliers is that, and they came under a lot of pressure. So the kind of pressure they'd come under was, you know, one of the big high street chains would come onto the phone to them and go, why are you dealing with these guys? Um, do not close your account with them or we will not buy any more fr frames from you. So they'd come under a huge amount of pressure to not do business with us. And I think the way that I originally dealt with it was that I didn't go for the bigger suppliers. I went for the smaller ones who... A, were willing to take more of a risk and, and, and were not willing to be pushed around and were more loyal and you could develop more of a stronger personal relationship with them. Um, and also, frankly, that they needed the money more. You know, so, um, so you know, whereas it's easier for a big supplier to go, yeah, we can do without your account, it's not so easy for a, for a struggling laboratory. Um, and, 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 so, and, we, and we actually helped a lot of these labs grow. So were you lucky in that there were lots of suppliers out yeah, there? Yeah, I suppose we were lucky in that in our industry there, there's quite a fragmented sort of suppliers. You've got lots of small, medium-sized right. laboratories. In some industries it might not be possible like that. Another potential problem. Mm. I, I sense some, uh, maybe I got this completely wrong, but I sense some agony in your voice when you were talking about professionalise the management team and do get it right and it's very dangerous if you get it wrong. Mm. Did you get it wrong? Yeah, absolutely. And I think, I think in, uh, you know, I've made hires that I've regretted. And I think any sort of um, CEO or chairman 
um, who's been in a business for longer than five years, you know, certainly will have, have, have also made mistakes too. And they're costly and they're time consuming. And also, you know, there's an opportunity cost in terms of the direction the business has taken. And um, I've made uh, errors and I've made, I've made some brilliant hires as well at all levels of the business. And I think that if I look back on why those have happened, it was, it's pretty easy actually to kind of avoid a lot of them, which is that I didn't spend enough time uh, recruiting um, and finding the right people and making you know having enough beers with them in the pub and making sure they're the right people and referencing them even if it's just informal telephone calls. Okay, okay. Hmm. And the other thing that intrigues me is the equity position. Hmm. You said that you know you got a whole bunch of friends involved at the beginning. Yeah. Did they want equity right from the start, or did you? How yeah, did you square think, that circle? I think the um, no. I mean, friends were helping me because they a they wanted a part-time job in in school in the university terms and mm -hmm. the holidays, and we were able to to pay. Um, and there were some friends that were close to me were helping as a favour. Um, but none of them stayed longer than the kind of initial first month or two because the business very rapidly needed specialists. So it needed specialists in customer service, in customer care, in dispatch and fulfilment, in marketing, you know. And um, typically, um, you know, when you're still at university, you've got other, other things on your mind. And so um, I, th I found that, you know, actually um, the people that did take equity were people who could provide longer term, more strategic advice. So I think you have to be careful as an entrepreneur with that. You know, equity is at the end of the day, you know, what you have as an entrepreneur and you have to protect that. So when I, um, when I thought about equity and how that was given out, um, you know, it was, it's, it's done on very much who's going to be here for the next five years, you know, who's going to be giving long-term strategic advice, who's the director of the company, um, that kind of thing. Hmm. Okay. And to leap right forward and then I'll stop. Um, exit. You know, we mm. always talk about when you go into a business, theoretically you should roughly know what your exit plan is, which nobody does, of course. But yeah. by this stage, do you have a sense um, of whether you'd like to sell it or do you want to keep it forever? Or yeah, I mean, we're really flexible, but I mean, at the point, at the moment, the management is just 100% focused on building a big company, and that is kind of what we've been focused on ever since. I think personally that I didn't really know when I started my business how it might exit, how it all might wind up in the end. All I knew was that I was doing something which I really enjoy, which was building something and creating something. Um, and I think providing, if you build something which is appreciated by people, you know, gives value to people, value to shareholders, very important, you know, that's why we're all in business effectively, then you, the exit will find you. Okay, sounds good. Mm. All right, let's throw it open. Yeah, Ted. Um, you, said, you said basically you, what you're doing on the internet and everything with the new mirrors and virtual mirrors. People would definitely copy you, that's right, but mm. have you got any plans on how to still differentiate yourself from the people that would eventually come in? Um, I think the, I mean, the, you're right that in the web um, there are limited bar barriers to entry and, um, you know, I suppose we operate in a regulated industry so that, that's kind of one that you need to overcome. The technology behind the kind of facial recognition stuff a lot of people can do to a basic level, um, but to get to you know, something where it can actually recognize various features of your face is actually quite intricate. But I think, like a lot of businesses, whilst it's very easy to compete with us and set one up, it's actually very difficult to scale it. And I think that is where our competitive advantage is, is that once you know how to grow a business and get to the scale of custom database that it starts to, you know, you get economies of scale and supply and marketing starts to become more and more effective because there's more and more people in your database telling people, um, then things start to take off much more rapidly than your competitors. So effectively, I suppose I'm trying to say that I think it's a land grab and we've always treated it like we know we've got limited barriers to entry. There's some that we can be pleased with, but really, you know, um, we need to move fast. Yeah. yeah. How did you go about recruiting the specialists at the stage you found you need <coughs> specialists? Well, um, the organisation structure that I started with w w is not necessarily how I do it again. I started with effectively employing people who were very hands-on. So I didn't put a management layer in when I started. I just went straight to the online marketing guy, the developers, to the customer service, and effectively they all reported into me. So. And that is probably, that's one way of doing it. That's doing it when you're really bootstrapping it and you know, you're, you're trying to cut costs all the way. Um, it's a very good idea to build more of a kind of you know, um, sequential kind of management structure. So you actually do put people in, you know, in the different tiers. So you might have a marketing manager who sort of heads up your online and your offline and CRM or whatever. Um, 
And I think if I did it again, I'd probably put more focus onto the more senior levels of management. But to answer your question, I went straight to the people who were actually hands-on doing, doing, doing the job. And I went through all the usual means like recruitment agencies. Um, and I went to, um, but, but, but now I think um, we, you know, if I was going to do it again, I would go to LinkedIn. I would search for the best people in, my, in that industry. So if I was going to go and start a Pret-a-Manger, I'd get on LinkedIn and I'd figure out who the founder of Pret-a-Manger was, the founder of Eat, um, and I'd email them and I'd say, you know, I'm a young guy at university, I want to start a business, would you mind sitting down with me for 10 minutes? And I reckon that you'd probably get a yes from them. And once you're there, you can then talk to them about how they'd like to be involved in the business or if they know anyone else who'd like to be involved in the business. So I mean, I'd say, yeah, good old networking, LinkedIn's great. Um, and recruitment agencies as well, you know, they're going to throw hundreds of CVs at you, but it's a good way of getting through people. It doesn't have you done a lot anything. of that yourself? Just yes. picking names out and emailing them and getting a good response? Yeah, I have actually. So, I mean, for instance, when I brought on board one of the most um, uh, important directors in Growing Glasses Direct, who was the founder of Go Airline before it sold to EasyJet, he became the marketing director of EasyJet. And I watched him give a speech about how he'd just won the London Olympic bid for London, and he was the marketing director for that. And he was giving a speech to the marketing society. And I just went up to him afterwards, and I just put my business card in his hand and said, if I can talk to you tomorrow, that would be great. I rang him tomorrow, and he joined the board, ended up becoming a significant investor in the company, kind of mentor to me. And what I realized from that was that if you're you know, someone who's got a good idea, and you, know, you, you go up to them, you've got the balls to kind of go up to them and give them your business card and just go, I need to get in touch, then people will, will do it. People love giving advice. Brilliant. Okay, hmm. next question. Sorry, we have you, sir. Yeah, I'm, I'm wondering, what's the percentage of the market you own? So, very small. It's a £3 billion market um, in the UK alone, and, we, um, uh, and, and we're, we're about less than 1% of that. So, it kind of goes to show how much further we have to go and what the headroom is. I mean, that is, that's kind of what's kind of exciting about our business, is that there's so much more to take in this industry. When you look at, um, as I said, like apparel, jewellery, shoes, they've all got up to sort of 10 to 20% of their markets. We're still at one. We've got so much work to do. Are you the biggest? Yeah, we're the biggest in, in the world at the moment. Yeah. Um, there's some guys doing a reasonable job in the States, but we don't believe they're bigger than us. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, sorry. I hope I don't come across this rule. Um, how much does it actually cost you to manufacture a, a, glass, a pair of glasses? Because yeah, you said sure. it was six, six pounds, right? Yeah. But you sell it between 15 to 35 um, price range. So how did you decide what percentage of rate of return you wanted to sit on yourself? Yeah. I, I, I hope I'm not no. sort of invading your no, no, sort of no, 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 great secret. It's a good question. And I think um, pricing strategy is something that, you know, if you're going to sell a product, you've got to decide how you price it. Um, and to be honest, you know, with us, when I knew that I knew, at the early stages of business, the biggest worry was for me was marketing. So I wanted to make our glasses 10 times cheaper than the high street so I could market that. We are 10 times cheaper than the high street. I could PR that. I could get customers to talk about that. And that informed my pricing decision. It was as simple as that. I knew that the economics were at a very low, if you take that low end pair of glasses that I showed, um, it was, you know, roughly 50-50, you know, gross margin. Um, and uh, I, 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 I said, if, you know, if I can make that 15 pounds, then I can say it's 10, you know, 10 times cheaper than the average spend, which is 150 pounds. Now, you know, you need to be. <laughs> yeah, I think you need to be. We've really that was at our cost. I mean, our, our lowest price is now 19 pounds. And um, you know, I, I think it depends on kind of earlier days. Your priorities are more are different from when you're kind of scaling a business to doing you know, five, six, seven, eight hundred pairs a day, which is what we're doing now. And, you know, the, 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 co the cost overhead is more. So it might be as simple as I want a great marketing hook to start with and you price it with marketing considerations. Or it might be that you opt for, you know, and I think revenue models, so I'm kind of going off on a tangent here, but I think revenue models are quite interesting. And, you know, experimenting with revenue models, whether it's kind of an honesty box system like Radiohead did, you know, where they literally said you can buy our CDs for free if you want or you can donate you know, a successful London restaurant did that as well. You can go and have a meal there and pay what you feel. And uh, seriously, and they found that people pay 30% more than it actually, they, they would have priced it at. Um, so, you know, and I think if you can come up with innovative kind of revenue models or, you know, like, um, you know, EasyJet did with variable pricing, pricing fluctuates, you know, I think that's kind of the future. Um, yeah. Do you do any of that yourself? Again? No, I mean we we we're very. I, mean, I suppose we are experimenting with kind of free economics, as as there's that book which is I recommend. Um, 
and where we're, you can actually go on our website and you can pick four frames and put them into a shortlist and we'll just send them to you the next day to try on at home for free. So you just get those glasses. And you just, something you just can't do at Specsavers, you can't just walk in and go, yeah, I'll have that one, that one, and I'll just take it away and come back next week. You know, they're not going to do it. They don't have the distribution, the logistics to handle that. They don't have the stock in the stores. And so online you can be a bit more kind of interesting about, how, you know, about that kind of stuff. But I think it is important to have a... You know, I think free is, is very, you know, interesting thing to play with. If you can make that work in your model somehow, a bit like how we've done with home trials, then, you know, that's great. Well, okay. Yeah, mm. Do you consider laser eye surgery big enough to be a competition? Yeah, there's no, laser eye surgery is tiny in terms of the market. It, it's, and the thing, there's some interesting things about laser eye surgery in that it's not growing as a market, really, um, because of two things that are inhibiting people. One is fear and one is cost. And those two things don't seem to be going away. So we're not too, we're not too worried about laser eye surgery. But anyway, we think glasses are fun and kind of cool to wear. So laser eye surgery takes the fun out of it. You're not tempted to get a blank pair yourself? No, well, I only wear them for reading. So, you know, I, it's not... That's why I'm wearing Do you perceive any, any threat from the, the contact lens industry? How does that relate to your product? The contact lens in Austria? Industry, yeah. I, I'm, I'm not aware as a... No, contact lens industry. Oh, industry. Sorry, sorry, I didn't hear. Um, yes, contact lens industry. Um, this is really interesting because they, they, they were sort of the precursor to glasses. They got in there first. They taught everyone how to do it. It was one of the most, it's, it's one of the maturest um, internet, you know, sectors of all. In the, in the United States, just one company alone has 10% of the contact lens market online called, called, um, called, called 1-800-CONTACTS. And... Uh, and so they were kind of good in terms of the glass industry and sort of showing people that you can take a medical device, put it online, and, 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 and it can be safe and it can be easy to do. Um, and I launched Contacts Direct about four, four years ago, just after I started glasses. And I found that even though, and this is probably something to think about as well, is that an industry that might look to be very similar, it's actually very different in that contact lenses is all about distribution. It's about picking and packing and getting them out the door. It's about the margins are much lower because it's not a customized product. And so just be careful when you, if you start a business and it seems to be going well, um, be careful about going, right, I'm going to get into loads of other categories like, like Richard Branson. Um, sometimes it's better just to focus on what you're doing and do it well. Um, when I, I heard the innocent guys, I don't know if they've been here, do a speech, but when they do, they put a slide up that shows a, an office of a basket in the United States, and it's, it's kind of shaped like a basket. And, uh, it, and they are actually a basket company, and they basically go, keep the main thing the main thing, because they have, you know, they've built their office in the shape of their product. But seriously, yeah, that's, that's what I'd recommend. Yeah, okay. Um, you, you said... What's it called? Do you maintain close relationships with your customers and everything. So, mm. do you think you can honestly keep this on when you expand? Yeah, and it's something that I mean, it is a challenge for any business to kind of keep that personal touch going. I think, um, I think it is something. I mean, it's the little touches that I'm talking about. It's it's kind of it's the small things. It's like getting a free gift when you open your glasses package. There's a, maybe an eyeball gobstopper staring out at you. You know, something that makes people laugh. That just you know, it's just the small things. And I think. You know, whereas in the, in the old days, you know, we maybe had to, you know, go the extra mile in a big way. We, we had to kind of give them, you know, a car wash or like, you know, I used to go to, I went down to Folkestone and hand-delivered a pair of glasses to make them happy. Now, you know, as a, bit, as a business grows, you need to actively search out small little ways to make it kind of more friendly and more fun and surprise and delight people. Hmm, yeah. Sure. Yeah, yeah, we, we, we deliver using the Royal Mail, so... Uh, it's Tell a, us about that. At the it, well, it's a problem. I mean, it really is. And um, it's extremely difficult for us um, because, um, you know, so much of our... I mean, people think it's just deliveries, but it's not. We market through the mail. We send out catalogues. We send out home trials. We send out orders. You know, if you count the amount of pa packets we send out per day, including, you know, marketing materials, things coming back to us, all that kind of stuff, you're, you're looking at, you know, well over a thousand, possibly thousands of items a day. Um, and you know some of our products are time limited, like our home trial. You need to have it back to us within ten days, otherwise you get tried, uh, charged. And so people get worried about that. And the best thing you can do is just be communicate, you know, better when in the kind of home trials and go even further with, you know, emailing people, telling them what's going on and that kind of stuff. But um, I think um, my personal view is that I think that the the raw mail is it, it, it's basically, you know, it's operating in a competitive market now, and it's got to realise that people. 
um, now do have options for companies. We can change to a career if we want to, and we did last time this happened, and we might do again. And there'll be lots of companies in our situation doing that again. So whilst for the workers it puts the pressures on the bosses for sure, it also upsets customers. And at the end of the day, no business can survive without customers. That sounds to me as though you're getting more ruthless. I mean, can you imagine yourself playing some of these games that your competitors played if you have a new entrant who comes in and suddenly threatens you? Yeah, I think, I think there's um, a difference between kind of trying to manipulate the supply of an industry and, you know, just trying to compete with them genuinely on, you know, price, service, convenience, that kind of thing, range. Um, and I think that's how we compete with a, a new entrant into our industry, yeah. So doing more of the same. Better. Yeah, 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 and I, yeah. But I think you never want to lose your sort of your ability to cause trouble in a way and to take risks, like we did with our sheep campaign up in Newcastle. I think that it kind of it gave the, it gives the more you kind of do that stuff, the more of the legend that you build into your company. And it's it's so important with a company, I think, to have a story behind it that people can see the history of how you've grown and the stupid things you've done and the the good things you've done and the way you've made. You know, in era, people don't want to see faceless companies at corporations anymore. They want to see kind of the, 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 the meat of it. Yeah. Do you manufacture all the frames yourself at the moment? Yeah, we have about 100,000 frames in stock at any one time. And we manufacture um, the, 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 what we do is we buy in the frames, we buy in the raw materials. And we have robots that um, effectively pick up the, the lenses, grind them down, um, and then put them into the frames. And, and then people finish it off. Um, with polishing and, and inserting the, the lenses. So, so you, you buy frames right, from suppliers? Yes. yes. You, you don't do frames yourself? No, we don't. We, I mean, frames, it doesn't make sense for any kind of optician to do it because um, you need to have, it's much more of a manufacturing kind of the machinery you need is a lot. And the infrastructure you need to kind of do that effectively means that you need to have such a big volume to make it worthwhile. I mean, not even spec savers, I don't think, manufacture their own frames. They, they, they buy them in from China, um, from big kind of, you know, manufacturing companies. Sure. Okay. Yeah. One of the issues is that you've got to go and get a prescription from a, an optician face-to-face. Mm. -face. Is, is that a, a, um, a problem about growing further? Is there a way to do that on the, on the internet, or is there...? Yeah, um, it was something that, you know, when you're breaking into an industry like we've done, you, you'll be sitting there thinking, <laughs> Do, do I, will customers really do this? You know, and that was one of the things that we thought about when I was starting up is, will they, after all this work of putting up a website and getting it all up and running and spending money and all the rest of it, will they actually do it? You know, and will people walk out of a high street optician and go, no, nah, actually, I'm not going to buy the glasses. I'm just going to walk and give me the prescription? Um, it's a big behavioral change. And I think the answer is that if there's enough benefit, if there's value there, then they'll cross a moat to get it. Um, and I was just convinced that the savings were great enough and, and you know, that effect, uh, eventually it could be more fun um, and we could have more advantages in the high street because it used to be about getting to the same state of where the high street are. But if you go into a, a sort of high street optician, it's so simplistic. You know, it's like 15 pounds, 30 pounds, 50 pounds rimless designer, you know, frames. And that's how they bucket them. And it's kind of like you get a grungy brown case with a sort of yellow felt thing inside and you know the, the, the atmosphere feels kind of 1950s, 60s in the store. And what people want is to be able to, as you saw with our screenshot, is you know they want to be able to categorize glasses by glasses that make me feel fun, that I want to go out with, that I business, here are my business glasses, my nearly invisible glasses, or you know they want to be able to search by metal type, by face shape, by hair colour, skin colour. You know, they want, to have, they want to have a personal style consultation. They want to be able to take their photos and share it out to all their friends and get their friends to rate them and send all the information back or maybe our opticians to rate them as well. And so whereas it started out with just being a value offering and going, right, we can compete on price, we think now we're getting experientially, we're going further than the high street. And I think if you can do that kind of thing, you know, more powerfully um, than the high street, then people will do it, even if it's more inconvenient. Um, because your innovation in your company was more radical and changed consumer behaviour, mm. how difficult do you find it to, to do the research which you need to, to do to prove to yourself and to others that it was a viable option for a viable company? Yeah, um, I didn't, I think that, I mean, to start off with, you should go to look up the Mintel report in the business library because we pay probably £1,000 a shot for that and you guys get it for free. Um, and it's a really good resource. It'll be 100 pages of gold, gold dust about any industry that you want to get into. So go there, research. But 
how did I do my research? I think I stopped doing research and I just did it. And I think if you can, if you can find a way to test it, um, like make one of the products, sell one of them, make two, sell two, at the lowest possible cost, then that is the best way of proving to an angel investor that the business can you know, drop money to the bottom line and, and it's an investable proposition. So test it, spend some time in the library for sure, do all your market research, don't overdo it, try if you can, if you've got the resources and the time, try and find a way of testing it for you know, a few hundred quid or whatever, or, you know, and try and do that and get the data and then give it to your investors. That's how I kind of go about it. That's how I went about it. Uh, how big is your team today? Um, our team is, well, we're about um, 80 to 100 people, something like that. Yeah. Um, it kind of varies because of the temporary workers and that kind of thing. But, uh, and just in the UK at the moment? Yeah, we're just in the UK. We're in, um, we're in Swindon and we're in London, just down the road. So um, in Baker Street. And is there global expansion? Yeah, well, we, the, the investors and the team mm. kind of, you know, we always bought into this because we thought that this was going to be, it could be a global phenomenon, and I still think it can be. Um, I think that the focus for the business has got to be on our main market, which is the UK. And as you pointed out, you know, we're still less than 1% in the market, and we've got a lot of work to do, and there's low-hanging fruit mm. here. Mm. So, yes, we want to be global. You know, we're working on that. People in the office are, are looking at different, you know, countries and jurisdictions and how that can work legally. Um, but we're, right now we're focused on the UK. Right. Yeah. yeah. Have you used external investors? You mentioned angels. Have you used angel investors? Yet? Yes, I have. I mean, my funding, how I funded the company went from student loan to I raised a small friends and family round, which is very common. Um, you know, lots of entrepreneurs do that. Go and give your proposition. As a first base, that should be your first base. Try and get people who um, are going to be the most willing to kind of take you seriously. Then I went out to um, strategic angels, so angels who I thought could help the business, like the EasyJet guy I talked about. So some a guy with a marketing pedigree or a guy with financial pedigree. If you, you, know, if you can't afford a, uh, a marketing guy, then a good way of getting their advice is by finding them as an investor or a mentor. And so that's the kind of thing I did, strategic angels. Then I did professional angels. So, and you can get to professional angels through you know, angel networks like Angels Den, E100. There are a few networks in London that will, you know, for a fee, for a percentage of the total amount raised, introduce you to angels. Um, so I did that. And then I went to venture capital. Um, and then I went to venture debt. And then I went back to venture capital through institutions. That, I mean, um, and I've raised 16 and a half million pounds in total. 16 and a half million? 16. 16 and a half million. Yeah. Yeah. So, so you sold some equity for that? Yeah. yeah. And yeah. then how, say, venture capitalists, I expect you to realize the their money. Yeah, they do. They expect an exit at some point. But they, it's, a, it's, it's your sort of choice as to whether you choose. I mean, you need to choose investors. And this is the same with referencing. You need to choose people who have the same ambitions as your business that you do. And you know, if you choose people like I've done who we have similarly long-term ambitions for the company, then it, it shouldn't be a problem you know, unless there was you know, misunderstanding it shouldn't be a problem later on down the line that they're going to go, right, we want an exit now, because you've got to have the same kind of vision for the company. But exit through the company selling core? Yeah, an exit could be um, a trade sale, so selling to another optical company, or it could be you know, a flotation on one of the main markets. I mean, um, there are different ways to exit a business, but it effectively means providing a liquidity event so that investors can remove their money. But have, have you agreed that with venture capitalists, when you make new structure, have you agreed with them how exactly and when exactly you're going to exit? No, I mean, what we, what we do is we make sure that we are, um, through a lot of discussions before we take on an investor, we make sure that they, you know, that they share the same ambitions as us, so they, you know, they have similar you know, aims to build a big company here, not to sort of flip it into another business. And, you know, you get a good feeling for this. There's no sort of, I suppose, you know, with us, we, we, we don't have any kind of, kind of contractual, I suppose, contractually agreed. Um, yeah. And were you able to shop around for the venture capitalists? Did you have enough of a reputation that you could choose them rather yeah, than them I, choosing I, you? Yeah, that's not? the ideal situation. Yeah. If you can actually um, create competition and, you know, have maybe 10 people who want to invest and you only need two of them, you know, then you can, you know, it's like an auction. Um, you know, you also got to weigh in their value, so what they're going to add strategically. So if one of them's great at marketing or something, then, you know, clearly they're, you know, you might put up with them having a lower valuation on the business because they're going to add a lot in terms of sweat equity, as it's called. Um, but that's something to kind of figure out as you, as you go. And can I just ask, 
amongst all these um, investors, how much equity have you managed to retain for yourself? Yeah, it's <laughs> we're going into a BBC interview here. <laughs> <laughs> um, no, but better better to get it out of the way here before we're on air. Okay. But uh, which is uh, we don't we don't kind of talk about the cap table. But I think just as so long as you're retaining a kind of a, uh, an are you happy with the amount? That yeah, you've just as so long as you're happy with the, the amount, and at every point you've managed to convince yourself that you um, that you, you know you've you struck a competitive deal, that mm -hmm. and you're confident that the business is growing. You know, provided you've held on to enough to make sure you're you're happy, uh, you know that's the way forward. And I and I have so. Okay. Yeah. Let's flip away from the BBC and go back. To yeah. <laughs> yeah. Go at the back. I know you're trying to grow the business, but have you actually gotten any acquisition offers from players like um, Specsavers, for instance? Yeah. Well, it is interesting that when we started out, we were the sort of scourge of the scourge of the industry, and we were the kind of the new kids on the block. No one wanted to talk to us, and now we get visited quite a lot by you know CEOs, <coughs> and I suppose if if people in the industry, both internationally and in the UK, want to understand more about the internet, we're the first people they look to. So yes, we do get approaches like you're talking about. Yeah. Are you, are you interested in you know, selling the business on if the price? No, right because it, it's not. It's as I say. I mean, our aim is to build a big business here, and I think there's so much more opportunity to go. Um, you know, there have been points at which you know I could have, you know, exited the business and taken away you know a bit of a bit of money out of the business and each time we've you know I've turned that opportunity down because I think that um, the job's not done and it's not done for our customers and it's not done for the business or the staff and we can still kind of grow the business more and you know I'm 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 happy growing the business so so is everyone else. Yeah. Do you have a sense of the market share you want to get to from one percent to would you be happy with ten um, or yeah I think I think in optics um, I mean you know bearing in mind that somewhere like um, you know, books can be 50% of the market, same with travel and stuff like that. Um, shoes, they managed to get up to something like 20, 25% of the market. Jewelry to 15. I think optics, we could get to 10% of the market. Um, and, and that's a considerable yeah, you well, know, chunk tenfold of... tenfold growth, yeah. Yeah. At least. Um, but that will have to be made up of a you know, composition of other of companies like us. Hopefully mm. we'll be the leader in that chunk. But it goes to show that we've got a long way to go. Yeah. Uh, Dave, you have, were you... Yeah. Yeah. Um, how do you motivate your workforce, or are they self-motivated in a way? Or um, I think we. So how do we motivate the workforce? I, I think what we try and do is um, to try to engage people in a sort of commonality of purpose. So um, we try and align each other with each other. So we, for example, some of the more practical kind of ways of describing that would be, every, you know. Pretty much everyone in our company has share options. In fact, everyone does. Um, we regularly get together as a whole company, even though we're spread over different offices, um, for you know, a sort of big social event and a kind of couple-hour company meeting as well, and make sure that everyone's kind of aligned in terms of where we're going. We are kind of completely transparent to the to the point where you know, unfortunately, when we were going into the credit crunch, I had to make some redundancies, and you know, it's a question of. It was one of the hardest things I've ever had to do, is to sit in front of people that I've personally recruited, and in some cases, actually plucked out of a company and enticed them to join Glasses Direct in a headhunting kind of capacity, and to sit in front of them and to say, I've screwed up, and we've, 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 you know, we've, the economy's gone this way, but also you know, our forecasting, we should have been more rigorous. And it's all about transparency. It's just about being able to you know, stand up in front of people and tell it like it is, and then you, you know, and we, we adopt that kind of with on a day-to-day, -day, whether it's through trading meetings, full company meetings, like I talked about, whether it's just through having completely open door policy, you know, everyone kind of, um, you know, being completely welcome at each other's offices, and actually there aren't any offices in each other's desks, you know. So, do you know what I mean? It's just kind of keeping everyone sort of focused, I suppose. Um, and you saw some of our guiding principles. I mean, that was that's kind of an internal poster. And I, I like to think that we do kind of work to that. So we have a very healthy sort of internet, interweb, kind of which everyone contributes to. Yeah, and, and we genuinely do take ideas from people in all areas of the business and turn them into reality. And, you know, my head of products um, used to be, um, uh, my, my head of products who's since left the company, so not my current head of products, but she started off as a cleaner in our company. She knocked on the 
door when we had our first office, so do you mind if I could do the cleaning? And she ended up being head of products. You know, my, I'm not joking. Like, and my, my, um, you know, one of my opticians then has now ended up you know, running the whole of the laboratory. Um, what else have we got? You know, we've got our customer services manager started up as a customer service advisor. So there's, there's lots of room to kind of move around. I think it's kind of important, especially when you're not opening up new jobs so much, you know, because we're all focused on, you know, um, keeping expenditure down in this kind of climate, I suppose. It's about making sure that people can expect to kind of move within the organisation. I could go on a few more, actually, that are springing to mind about that kind of thing, but I think that's kind of key as well. Yeah. Yeah. Um, you said that the economic kind of uh, recession has hit your business. Mm. Did you envision people coming to, uh, and turning more towards your products as, as a value, value product like they have done in the supermarket? Yeah, I mean, so I'm talking about you know, being prudent in a, in a sort of very difficult you know, economic environment. Actually, in terms of spending patterns of customers, we're actually net effect is we have not been affected by the economic climate. People are spending money differently. As you might expect, they're buying different pairs of glasses. They're buying them at different you know, periods of time. Um, but more of them are buying, and we're converting them better, and we're acquiring them cheaper because our marketing's working harder, um, because the message resonates more effectively. So the net effect is that our growth has remained pretty much constant at about 60% year on year every year since we started. And it will be this year as well. Yeah. Yes, yeah. go back. Yeah, you say that um, you, you're, you've been growing steadily. Do you not regret making people redundant then? Um, I think every company, the, the thing is, is that, I mean, you have to kind of adapt to what the market throws at you. And um, I don't think I know of a company, actually, that didn't take measures like that, you know, when, as, we, as we went into this. And times could get a lot worse, you know. Um, money's going to have to come from somewhere. You know, even the Conservatives, who are forecasting cuts everywhere, can't produce more than whatever it is, 30, 40 billion, and we've got maybe 150 billion to kind of cover. That's got to come from somewhere. That might come from VAT rises. So what I'm trying to say is the worst might not be over. And someone, even though that's a tax on spending, you know, it's got to come from somewhere. Um, you know, our prices might have to be adjusted. And I think, you know, if you can be prudent earlier, you know, the, 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 the earlier you can kind of grasp the nettle and kind of, you know, do what, do what it takes, you know, the better equipped you're going to be to weather the storm. And I don't think the storm's over. Do you think there's a lot more to go? Yeah, I do, because I think that well, I think that we're gonna next year. I think we're gonna be I think we're gonna be taxed heavily, and I think that's gonna have an impact on businesses. Um, you know, it, it's gonna be very severe if this government stays. It's gonna be severe if the you know Tories get in, um, because you know there's so much of a deficit to cover, and that's got to come from somewhere. That's gonna affect people's spending. It's gonna affect businesses. And so I'm sorry to be the, like doom and gloom, but I do. I think you've got to prepare yourself. Yeah. Hmm. Okay, we have time for. Well, we don't actually, but let's take two more questions. Um, yeah. You said that you originally started basically in your house, and you only had your friends as your uh, in your team. And so I was wondering how you were able to actually recruit uh, professionals hmm. with no reputation. Yeah. Um, weirdly, I didn't find it. I mean. When you're starting out and you've got no reputation, um, re remember that I was only recruiting people who were really hands-on. So I wasn't recruiting the senior guys. I was, I was recruiting your customer service managers, your, head, your online marketing guys, the people who are actually managing the Google paid search on a day-to-day -day basis, not the guy that's managing them, who might be worried about um, reputation and stuff. So when you're recruiting kind of um, junior tiers of workers, you're going to find that people are more interested in the job, actually, and the pay and, you know, and holidays and whatever than they are about, okay, what actually, what's the current situation with this company? It's only been around six months. Y you know, I didn't find that to be a, um, a kind of problem for us, to be completely honest. I found that people interviewed, you know, we got lots of people interested and we found the right people for the right jobs. Um, so it's a very plausible concern. And I think you know, you're right to bring it up in practice. I think unless you're recruiting more senior people, when you're recruiting more junior people, it's not so much of a concern. And by the time you got to the senior and by people, the time you, you got the to the senior people, you okay. have more of a reputation. Yeah. But also, I mean, I suppose it goes down to kind of being good at selling your story and telling your, you know, articulating the vision. And um, I hope we did a good enough job of that. Yeah. One last question. Yeah. Go on. In terms of uh, the market, 
Yeah, the market is, is growing still. It's only growing gradually. I mean, we've got an aging population and people over 50 wear glasses, you know, have, have more of a chance of wearing glasses. So, but um, we'd like the market to expand a whole lot more. We'd like people to start wearing it for fashion reasons like swatch watches, stuff like that. Um, but right now it's, it's fairly steady, actually. Yeah. Fantastic. Yeah. Well, thank you so much. No that was one of the most inspirational. Cool. Well, thank you. Cheers.